you know, baseball has moved from being kind of an intuitive business to a highly analytic business in terms of player evaluation and strategy and so forth. But at the end of the day, you have to score more runs than the other team. That's recently retired Jim Copacino talking baseball. What does Jim know about baseball? A lot. Jim is responsible for all those memorable Mariner TV commercials over the last 28 years. And he will share some experiences in working with Mariner players. And also, what was his favorite Mariner TV commercial? My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. Welcome to today's show. Back with Jim Copacino in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Jim Copacino, one of the top minds in the advertising agency business, started his career in New York's Madison Avenue, and worked with powerhouse agencies like McCraw-Hill and DDB. He and his wife then moved to Seattle. After working with local advertising agencies for almost 20 years, he started his own firm along with Betty Fujikato in the mid-1990s. Both Betty and Jim were drawn to a business like advertising that combines art and commerce. That's when Copacino and Fujikato was born. Some of their clients have included Primera Blue Cross, Seattle Children's, St. Michelle Wine Estates, Holland America Cruise Lines, Washington State University, and the Seattle Mariners. Jim worked with the Mariners for 28 years, creating some of the most memorable TV spots in local sports history. I'm sure that anyone who's lived in Seattle for a period of time remembers many of these TV commercials. We all have some favorites. I asked Jim what was his favorite. Jim recently retired from the agency business in February 2020. My first question to Jim, what brought you and your wife to Seattle from New York in 1979? You were in New York. You were living the dream, working for an ad agency there. And then you, with your wife, picked up and moved to Seattle in the late 1970s. Why did you do that? Well, we were living in Brooklyn, and uh, we'd had our first child. Our daughter, Allison, was born in 1978. We loved living in New York, but it was, you know, New York was kind of rough in the 70s. And we, you know, sort of faced that decision of whether we should uh, sort of plant our flag in the city and and raise our family there, perhaps move to the suburb or or move to another city. My wife's brother had moved to Seattle and we came out to visit. And, you know, it was one of those, we left New York during a garbage strike, you know, (laughs) It was 90 degrees and, and uh, 90% humidity, and, and uh, you know, the city was reeking with all this garbage that was piling up. And we got off the plane in SeaTac, and the sun was, you know, dancing. Sunlight was dancing on the sound, and the, the air was as crisp as an apple, and it was uh, gorgeous. So we said, let's give this a try. So I um, worked for a number of agencies in Seattle before starting our own uh, agency, Betty Fujikato and I, Copacino Fujikato, in uh, 1998. So you got together. What was it that drove you to start your own agency? 
Well, I, I, you know, I had been working in Seattle for about 20 years, and it was always, uh, it was always a dream of mine to, uh, to have an agency. And, uh, you know, I, I developed a pretty good network over the years, and uh, the economy was pretty robust at that time. So we thought, okay, let's give it a try, you know. And uh, I actually started as a freelancer in 96, you know, as an independent contractor, and uh, had, uh, you know, gotten a few accounts and gotten a little revenue stream going. And Betty <clears throat> Fujikato and I had actually worked together at the old Cheyenne Day Agency. And we'd become friendly. And uh, Betty had a lot of the skills that I lacked in terms of business administration. And, uh, and you know, she was also a very good marketer at the same time. So, you know, we had complementary skills. And uh, so I called her and said, you know, I've, I've got a little something going here. And I think we might have something to build on. And she was ready to come back to work. She had just had twin girls. She said, "Yeah, let's 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 give it a try." So we uh, we opened our shop in a little, I don't know, in about 400 square feet of sublet space in Pioneer Square with computers we bought from home and a rented fax machine. You needed a fax machine back then, and uh, luckily it it uh, turned out pretty well. What was the first major client that you landed? Well, it was actually the Mariners, because I had worked on the Seattle Mariners since 1990, starting at Chiat Day, and then I moved to McCann Erickson, and the Mariners came along with me. And then when I left to freelance, I got a call from them. They said, would you be able to to handle our account? And I said, uh, yeah, I believe I could. And, and, and they moved over. So I actually had that account as an independent for a year before we, we started the agency. So they they it's it's been a long and you know very satisfying relationship. Like you, Paul, I'm a big baseball fan and you know, the ability to combine your your personal passion with your professional life was very very rewarding. Your ads made baseball fun and I think there's a double edge plus to that. First of all, the Mariners at that time, in the very beginning, of course ninety five they took off, but you know, at that beginning, yeah. that was a really good approach to a, a team that really wasn't performing that well. But the double edge too, it put fun in baseball. And I don't recall seeing ads with other baseball teams that approached it that way. Were you one of the first to do that? I think we got a pretty early start on it. Although you remember Bill Beck, the famous baseball owner of the St. Louis Browns and later the Chicago White Sox. And and he was a, a promotional genius, you know, before his time and a real empresario and entrepreneur. And, and he once said that if I had to rely on the hardcore baseball fan for my livelihood, I'd be out of business by Memorial Day. There's always been a recognition that as the revenue model started to build in Major League Baseball, that you have to reach beyond the traditional baseball fans with messages and promotions designed to uh, target a wider audience, you know, young singles and families, women, and to bring a broader population into the ballpark. So certainly uh, the Mariners have always, you know, far pre uh, predating uh, my involvement with them. They've always been pretty creative and enlightened marketers. And, uh, you know, they deserve a great deal of the credit for, you know, willing to try new things and to bring some fun and entertainment to the marketing of the team. What is your favorite commercial that you produce for the Mariners? Do you have a couple you could share? You know, Jamie Moyer, who you remember was this uh, left-handed, soft-tossing picture. We did one commercial where Jamie's warming up in the bullpen and they have a radar gun there. And of course, he never 
through much harder than 83 or 84 miles an hour in an era where people threw 100 miles an hour. So he throws a pitch and the radar gun says 101. And he throws another pitch and the radar gun says 103. And he throws another one, it's 99. And people are amazed and they say, is that, is that 101 miles an hour? No, no. And they say it's kilometers. So Jamie bought this radar gun in France and he feels pretty good when he uses it. So I vaguely remember <laughs> so that one. Trans- I do remember that one. We yeah. transposed uh, miles and kilometers to make Jamie a, a flamethrower. Uh, you know, working with Ken Griffey Jr. was was amazing. So uh, we did a, a lot of fun commercials with him. And I think my favorite there was the all Griffey team where we had this fantasy. I think it was after his MVP season where he plays every position on the field. I really remember that one. Yes. And of course, Ichiro was remarkable. We did a kind of a cute commercial where he's at his home and uh, he gets a request uh, for an autograph from a little girl named Katie in Spokane. So he, he writes on the ball, Dear Katie, thanks for being a big fan, Ichiro. He steps outside his home and throws the ball across the state, and it lands on her doorstep in Spokane. Jay Buner was a lot of fun to work with. I think my favorite with him was just after uh, what was then Safeco Field opened. You know, finally the Mariners were freed from the Kingdom, and they were playing outside in the sunshine. And Jay takes his hat off and shines his bald head and distracts a batter with the sun reflecting off his off his head. <laughs> I do remember that one very well. But, you know, I think we've done almost 200 of these over the years. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of favorites. Larry Bernandez, you remember, remember that? Yes. Felix Fernandez, when he was in disguise, you know, it was kind of... Yes, a guy who wants that's to more recent. That's a fairly and, recent one, wasn't there? Maybe less yeah, that was five a few years, years ago. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one of my favorites that I just really enjoyed among many of them, but was the Clapper with Edgar Martinez. Mm-hmm. And then Edgar he was such a gentleman to work with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I just love right. the, Just so innocent. Right. Just he, one little line, and it was just like, I think we have uh, a problem. It was a device that, uh, you know, like the Clapper, that could turn on the stadium lights at night so they could take late-night batting practice, and then right. they're in an actual game. and. And the fans are clapping, and the lights are going on and off and on and off. And <laughs> I'm still laughing at Edgar that goes, one. And you know, Edgar is, you know, exactly what he appears to be. You know, he's a he's a humble, modest gentleman in every sense of the word. You know, I don't think he really enjoyed doing the commercials. You know, he he's you know he doesn't like the limelight shined on him. And for a while there, he thought people were you know just that his accent and so forth was is what endeared him to people. Which wasn't true. I mean, they just they just loved him because he because of who he was. But he was always so cooperative, and he put up with all our silliness and nonsense, and just a wonderful man. Lucky to to uh, have been associated with with him. I think so. I think he and Dan Wilson have the record for most most commercials. So. Okay. But most of the players were really easy to work with. Yeah. You know, get in there and good sports about it. Yeah. In the early going, we worked with Buner and, and with Griffey, and you know Buner was was a real uh, leader in the clubhouse, and Edgar, of course, too. And uh, after the first uh, couple of times we did it, you know, it got to be a little bit of a clubhouse tradition. You know, in fact, when players would come over to the Mariners, they would say, "Am I going to be in a commercial?" You know, they they had gotten a little bit of uh, notoriety around the league. And again, owing to the Mariners' marketing team, uh, they they just created a really good environment where. We respected the players' time. We didn't keep them, you know, there for hours and hours. We would be pretty efficient getting in and out. And, and they seemed to enjoy it. You know, we did it in the early days of spring training when, when there wasn't a lot of pressure or demands on their time. 
And uh, it, it just turned out to be really a, a wonderful experience. And we think um, that it's, it's the longest running campaign in professional sports, you know, using the same sort of theme and technique throughout. Well, you know, the other thing you mentioned, I, I think, you know, it's really interesting, the fact that it has lasted this long, because that is very unusual in the advertising industry. And there are some campaigns yes. that I've seen over the years that I wonder why it is gone. What, what happened to it? Like, I thought Southwest Airlines was really hit a, hitting a grand slam, pardon the pun there, but they had something going <laughs> really well when they had the Need to Get right. Away campaign. Those were wonderful. Yes. They lasted mm -hmm. for like two or three years and they went away. Now, my suspicion is that a new agency came in and said, oh, we got to start over again. A lot of that happens, right? It does. And changes in, in uh, you know, marketing management and so forth. You know this well, Paul. Advertising can be a pretty volatile industry. And, uh, you know, account relationships are often like Hollywood marriages. You know, <laughs> they last for a couple of years and something changes and something goes on. But you're right. Uh, either a new marketing director, new market circumstances, a new agency. And I think oftentimes that uh, the people who are involved in the creation of the work get tired of it far before the public does. And that doesn't always serve brands well. That's right. I see that all the time. It's just like it's now beginning to work and now you're pulling the plug on it. It's like I'll use the analogy. We're going to stick to baseball. And that is like <laughs> you know, the pinstripes of the New York Yankees. They never change. The Boston Red right. Sox, the, the Boston Celtics, the teams that are held in great tradition, but their uniform never changes. And a lot of people, mm -hmm. I think, that are insecure and are always moving around their brands are showing that they really aren't secure in what they're doing. You certainly have to be nimble because the marketplace changes constantly. But if you have a baseline of what your brand stands for and the core purpose of that brand, you can't wander away from that uh, cavalierly. So speaking of, uh, let's say, advertising, you had really, if we had a Fortune 500 in Seattle, you had a lot of Fortune 500 companies that you did work for. In, in that type of category, is there anything that you brought very consistently? I'm talking about people out there who may want to go into marketing, that you had a fundamental approach to everything that you did. You know, as general as it sounds, we, we always try to combine strategy and, and creativity. You know, I mean, that we, we never lost sight of that the core purpose of our job is to advance our clients' interests, and that's usually rooted in strategy, you know an analysis of the marketplace, where does this product or service fit in the marketplace, and how can we tell a story about a brand that serves the audience's emotional needs and functional needs? You know, that's all strategic. And then you just find, try to find some exuberance and some energy and some surprise in the creative execution of the strategy. But there's always, a, you know, the bedrock strategy, which is, hey, for every dollar a client spends in advertising and marketing, we, we want to return on that investment and show some effectiveness. And I would imagine that goes pretty much to every client, that obviously that's what you're trying to do. Anything else, let's say yeah. that you have a process that you go through in terms of that's very consistent, with, no matter what the client is? Yeah, and I don't think it's terribly different from, from most other agencies. It's, uh, you know, it's discovery. It's learning about the product and the brand the audience, and then putting together a uh, creative brief, you know, uh, which is sort of a blueprint in terms of uh, what is the one key message that uh, is going to be most motivating 
to that audience and connect the brand to the audience and and then executing it in the most effective way possible in a, in a way that's going to break through the clutter and in a way that's going to uh, get people's attention, but get, get attention in a way that is going to be in service to the brand. Uh, it, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to attract attention in an ad, but uh, you know, we've all had that experience where you see a commercial, you see an ad, you see a, something that's interesting or funny or compelling, but it's hard to remember what that brand was. So that connection and that uh, tying the message to the brand is, is, uh, is challenging. I was reading in some information about some past comments you've made. And uh, one thing about the digital has changed everything in terms of the industry. I want you to talk about that just a bit. And also I wonder, I have some observation about the click-through mentality that I see a lot of agencies and people try to boast about, well, we had 800,000 click-throughs. And to me, that means absolutely nothing. I don't say nothing, but it's not where you really, the rubber meets the road. But first of all, you mentioned that the digital industry has changed everything pretty much or a lot. Could you elaborate on that? It's been totally disruptive and uh, a revolution in marketing and advertising as we've known it. Just you know, the same way it's disrupted the newspaper business or the music industry or television and radio. First of all, it's given a lot more control to the consumer and the audiences over the content they want to receive and how they access, access it and when. And, uh, you know, it's an on-demand world and the consumer audience is in charge and they can even block the ads they aren't interested in. On the other hand, digital advertising has given marketers more data and more insight into its audiences. We can track users and their media habits much more closely and precisely and we can deliver customized messages in more relevant environments. You know, for example, if we're targeting young women who are interested in fashion, for example, we can serve ads to them in real time when they are uh, involved in fashion-oriented websites or social media platforms that emphasize fashions. You know, with smartphones, we can serve ads to them in real time when they're shopping in a, in a Sephora or a, or a Nordstrom, for example. So there's no question digital data and analytics allow us to, to segment audiences and reach them with far more accuracy than traditional media. But of course, it raises some issues about privacy, you know, and being stalked by marketers. And for marketers, it allows us to be faster and smarter, more accurate with audiences. But it's, it's harder to tell a compelling and persuasive story in a tweet or in a tiny ad on a mobile phone to get a click on a banner ad. Uh, you know, and I like to say just because you can count an impression doesn't mean you've made an impression. And that's, I think, the challenge for storytellers in digital is that, uh, the, you know, the, the many forms that you have are so brief and fleeting that it's hard to really engage the audience in a compelling story. Yeah, I like the part of the impression that it doesn't really make an impression. One more final question. If you were going into marketing now, you're someone who wanted to jump in and you had a dream of owning your own agency, with what's been going on with COVID-19, and I don't know how long that's going to be with us, is there anything that you would advise someone because of COVID-19 and the hangover of that or how you would approach going into the ad agency business now? I think a lot is going to change in terms of there's going to be more online shopping, certainly. Uh, there is going to be uh, people are probably going to stay home more, maybe travel less in the near term. So it's going to be more, you know, more home based and more domestically based. 
Oh, and, and also, you know, from a business standpoint, I think we're going to see a lot of people in all businesses, certainly in advertising, recognizing that working remotely is uh, efficient and uh, possible. Uh, that's going to have some consequences, I think, on commercial real estate in terms of, gee, do we really need all this space? Does everybody need to come into the office and be there at the same time? I think there's going to be a lot more flexibility in terms of worker time and in terms of whether you need full-time employees or contract workers and all that kind of stuff. All that said, though, I think the basics of our business will not change, which is really it's about telling the truth about a product in an interesting way that appeals to the audience's functional needs and their emotional needs. And although the the media are going to change and the circumstances under which we create the work is going to change, there's it's it's still going to be a business where you want to connect brands to people in a way that uh, respects the audience and it advances the business business interest of the advertiser. That's the fun and the challenge of this business. And uh, you see a lot of great changes in how it's done, but the end result, uh, I think, will remain uh, constant. Like baseball, the fundamentals will remain the same. There you go. You know, we're, yeah, that's, that's a great analogy because, you know, baseball has moved from being kind of an intuitive business to a highly analytic business in terms of player evaluation and strategy and so forth. But at the end of the day, you have to score more runs than the other team. That's Jim Copasino, co-founder of Seattle's Copasino and Fujikato Advertising Agency. If you want to take a look at some of the greatest commercials over the years, all you need to do is go to YouTube and then input Seattle Mariners commercials. Today, I would like to talk about the do's and the don'ts of making presentations. Hopefully, sometime in the near future, we'll be able to interact with people again and go to speeches and and have that atmosphere that we miss so much. But this also, I believe, is good advice for Zoom presentations as well. Let me just jump right into it. Here's a do. Always ask the chair of the club that's inviting you to speak, how long do you have to speak? 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever the chair tells you, stick to it. Do not go one second over the allotted time, and this includes questions. Don't talk for more than 20 minutes. Your speech should not last more than 20 minutes. Let your audience take the points that you've made in the direction they want to. I mean, I know the biggest fear is that there won't be any questions. If you get into that circumstance, have a question ready for yourself. In my case, I talk about self-employment a lot. You have a question ready. I would say something like, the most frequent question that I'm asked is, what type of business should I go into? That leads me to another don't. Throw PowerPoint away for luncheon and evening audiences. And then you can't make a relationship with the audience. This is not a departmental meeting where you need to go over PowerPoint, which has its place there. But too often people bring their PowerPoint presentation that they give to their staff and they give it to the general audience of uh, whether it's, again, a luncheon or evening meeting. Another do, practice, practice, 
practice until you are so sick of your presentation, you want to scream. Believe me, once you get to a live audience, your adrenaline will run some, you have a little nervousness there, and it will sound very fresh, and people are hearing it again for the first time, even though you have said it many, many times. You will be a lot more confident if you know your subject inside and out. Record your presentations. Hear how you sound. Now, you will sound different to yourself. We all know that. You won't sound like you think you do. But the reason that's good is that you will find yourself saying some tick words like, you know, you know, well, I don't know. And that's why you're here talking about this subject to me. I don't know and I want to learn more. You get rid of those type of tick words, which I can do. I may have said you know in this presentation. I'm not aware of it. And I have a habit of doing that too. And uh, the other thing is the ahs. There's a lot of the pauses. Like I had someone on the air about a month ago and uh, and then Benny helps me clean that up. Thank you, Benny, for that. So let's see, tell a story. Here are two approaches. Let's say you're giving a speech on climate change or you're hearing a speech on climate change. And the speaker says, the average temperature has spiked 1.5 degrees over the last 50 years. Ice glaciers are melting at a record pace. Well, first of all, I really don't know if 1.5 degrees is really remarkable or not. It doesn't sound that bad to me, but obviously people think it is. And generally, because I trust science, I think it's a big deal and we should be concerned. But how about another way of putting it? The earth is warming at a record pace. When you drive by Mount Rainier, our majestic mountain on the Cascades, we all love that mountain. I know if you've lived here for any length of time. Picture this, Mount Rainier is a giant iceberg. The equivalent of 200 Mount Rainiers disappeared last year due to climate change. Next year, it will be 300. We must act now. What do you think is more powerful? When you can, tell a story. So those are some tips about making presentations and speeches. Next week, I'm going to talk about visualization techniques so you can really memorize your major points. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. I would like to thank Jim Copacino for being with us today to share his wisdom and experience. If you would like to hear any previous Voices of Experience radio show, all you need to do is Google KKNW, then click on to podcasts. A page will appear with all the radio shows that air on KKNW. Go to the very bottom of the page and then click on to Voices of Experience and you are there. Quote of the week, truth is the most valuable asset that we have. Let's accommodate it. Mark Twain. My comment on what Mark Twain had to say, truth is not only under assault every day in this country now, it's under assault every hour. I also wonder, what would Mark Twain have thought about Twitter? 
A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and again Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Have a great rest of the week.